Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who is in Las Vegas. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, reporter Michelle Rendells and I speak with the policy director for the Nevada chapter of the ACLU, Holly Wellborn. We have an issue with the audio quality in this week's episode, so it won't be exactly podcast smooth, but our producer and editor Joey Lovato has identified the problem and will have it fixed next week. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. Great. So, uh, Polly, thanks so much for being here. We're here with Polly Wellborn, uh, the ACLU's policy director. Um, we're about a week away from the start of the legislative session, and there's going to be a lot of big priorities for the ACLU coming up over the next 120 days. And Polly, thank you so much for coming to the, the Indy Carson House and, and talking with us about all this stuff. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be at Cafe Day Indy. <laughs> Holly, um, I don't know if we mean to start off with something so grim, but uh, since it's so new, um, one of the things the ACLU has been very vocal about has been uh, the ongoing case with um, Scott Dozier and the fight to uh, prevent the execution. and and really outlaw executions in Nevada, and we recently uh, heard that Scott Dojai had uh, died by suicide in Ely State Prison. Uh, where does this leave Nevada in terms of the fight uh, to ban the death penalty on your guys' end, mm-hmm. and the fight for more transparency in the process? No, um, it's a terrible tragedy what happened to, to Mr. Dozier, the fact that he decided to, to take his own life. And I think from our perspective, it really illustrates the problem the fact that Mr. Dozier was put in a position because the state was so adamant about proceeding with this execution and um, reinstituting the death penalty in the state. Um, I think it represents a lot of the, the failures, you know, that we don't have transparency with medications that are being used. We don't have systems in place to ensure that executions are humane. Of course, it's from our perspective that no execution is humane. So at the very least, the Department of Corrections should share that information. It should be clear what um, individuals would be facing if they are going to die at the hands of the state. But I think it's more so um, shows what a broken system it is, that Mr. Dozier, you know, the last month of his life was um, living this obsession of, of wanting to end it. and. Um, and go through that process, and I think it's, it's time that we end the death penalty once and for all, so that way people who are living in the Department of Corrections and living on death row or serving a life sentence have something else to focus on, and um, we can end this inhumane practice. What do you think the outlook in this coming session is for uh, eliminating the death penalty? I know that there's a BDR in the works, I believe, from Senator Orenshaw. Um, to, to, to bring it up again and try to ban the death penalty. Uh, last time, though, we saw it come up for a hearing and never uh, proceed to a vote. And what's your, your sense on how things are going to go, and how encouraged are you by what uh, Governor Sisolak has been saying on the topic? I think Governor Sisolak's uh, position, his, um, his position against the death penalty, is very promising. I think that puts us in... Um, 
a position to really, you know, try to fight and advocate to end the death penalty in Nevada once and for all. Um, I'm confident that if we keep talking about this issue, we keep sharing data on costs, we, we talk about the, the racial justice issues associated with the death penalty, that um, we will get to a point where Nevada rejects that. As long as we're, we're sharing information and um, showing people that this is not what's right for our state, that Indian practice is not what's right for our state. So we are um, thrilled to hear Governor Sisolak talking about that issue so openly and transparently, and I think that it will change the conversation and move that the bill forward. And um, Senator Orenshaw, he has a bill draft, and also uh, Assemblyman Fumo have a bill draft. So there will be two bill drafts going through the session this time around. Holly, I'm curious for those who don't know and are listening, uh, Mr. Dozier's planned execution was going to be the first one in the state since 2006, and he had given up all of his appeals, and yet his uh, execution was delayed very uh, various times, I think up to three or four times. The most recent was this 11th hour decision um, uh, brought by a lawsuit by the drug companies that said the state um, got the drugs basically and didn't tell them what they were going to use them for. Are we at the point where there is basically a de facto uh, moratorium on the death penalty given all of the procedural hurdles there are for these sentences um, to be carried out? Uh, if you know, if Mr. Dozier had given up all of his appeals and yet he wasn't able to get there over this entire process, if our, I guess, where, where does that leave the state and the people that are on death row currently? Um, well, because there isn't a protocol in, um, in line with statute and regulation with the Department of Corrections, um, I would say that there is a de facto moratorium, um, especially if the pharmaceutical companies are adamant that they don't use their drugs for uh, execution purposes and if they can't find the pharmaceuticals, then sure, they're not going to be able to proceed with um, executions in the state. Now, I don't think that there is any kind of drive for pharmaceutical companies to change their position on that, but, you know, there's always that possibility. So I think we have to proceed with the fact that, you know, the death penalty still is, you know, alive here in the state of Nevada, and there are interests that want to um, proceed with executions, and um, people people want to see that happen. So I think that repeal is, is the track that we need to be on, or at, at minimum, a regulatory formal moratorium through the um, Board of Prison Commissioners, something like that, or the director of the Department of Corrections um, exercising his authority to put a stop to um, executions more formally and publicly. One thing I've always been curious about on the death penalty in Nevada, and we did a poll on this in 2017 on just public uh, favorability on the death, the death sentence generally, and I think Steve Wolfson brought it up actually in his testimony in 2017, but a significant percentage of Nevadans favor keeping the death penalty versus getting rid of it. And so I'm curious, just, I think in reporting on this and having to deal with it, I think it gives you a different perspective than just thinking about it sort of without context, but just for you, I mean, how do you deal with that disconnect with the public if they are still in favor of keeping that in place? I think, um, we don't like your poll. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like that poll question. It's, it's um, an up or down, I don't think gives the full picture of what voters are thinking. I think, um, you know, a benchmark poll that asks more questions and, and dives into what people are actually thinking, like, where, what, um, how does the death penalty uh, resonate in the voters' minds? Like, how do they prioritize that when they're considering voting for a legislator, right? I think that's very important information to have. So sure, they might have, you know, a moral um, opinion on the death penalty, but it might be something that they don't consider first when they're going to vote, for instance. Um, or if you start, you know, 
sharing information about the cost, the high cost of the death penalty, and ask that individual voter, you know, does that change your mind and your perspective on the death penalty? I don't think a lot of, you know, pollsters that are going out there and people who are looking at that issue are asking the questions in that way. So that's something that, you know, we would really like to see because I think once you start narrowing it down, asking the question in different ways, talking about, um, you know, when you start talking about, for example, death penalty for juveniles, you have a very different perspective. Death penalty for seriously mentally ill individuals where um, many people on death row here in Nevada could, um, you know, certainly be considered seriously mentally ill. And we are saying that we're subjecting those people to executions. I think if you have that conversation with the general public, their minds change. So um, I don't think that we have enough information to know, you know, what do Nevadans really think about the broader, more complex issue of the death penalty. Now, the conversation about the death penalty sort of happened before the Scott Dozier case was really front and center um, and just in the news a lot, maybe more in people's faces. So do you think anything has changed even among legislators or the general public in their feelings um, about the death penalty because of the Doja case? I think, I don't really know that I have a way of measuring that. I mean, I think for certainly Senator Orenshaw and Assemblyman Fumo, they really, you know, have a strong commitment to um, ending the death penalty in, in Nevada, and it's been strengthened by what happened with Mr. Dozier. Um, I think, too, you know, I'm very interested to see how the conversation will play out through the new Board of Prison Commissioners, now that that will be made up of Sisolak, um, Attorney General Ford, and Secretary of State Pagaski, to see if that's going to be more of a conversation on the Board of Prison Commissioners. I would like to see that be more, um, you know, of a, a public conversation that they're having with the Department of Corrections, uh, to, so we can gauge, you know, where are our lawmakers at, the regulatory body that can help make these decisions. So um, I think more will be transparent as we move through with the new administration. Moving on to another topic that's just sort of emerged lately has been the top-down review of Nevada's criminal justice system done through the Crime and Justice Institute. Um, So this was an outside group that came with the help of federal money um, and worked with Nevada stakeholders to uh, come up with 25 recommendations on how to improve the criminal justice system. And they say, what is it, $640 million that Nevada could save in prison costs over 10 years if they implement a lot of these changes. Some of the changes look like they are going to be a tough sell, like uh, the burglary. Uh, maybe making Nevada's burglary statute, which happens to be very large and broad, uh, narrowing it down and kind of adding some nuance to it. Um, but that was a tough sell in 2017. That didn't uh, go through. That sort of almost backfired on the legislators that prevented it. Do you think we're in a different place now, um, that the legislature might be more open to what the criminal, uh, the, what that panel had to say? I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So I, you know, first of all, Nevada is one of the only states that has this very broad category for burglary that doesn't differentiate between residential versus commercial, doesn't differentiate between, you know, somebody being present in the home, um, doesn't differentiate if there's, you know, a weapon involved. And it's not proportionate or fair to say that a person who's victimized and they're in the home and they're fearing for their life and somebody breaks in is the same thing as, you know, somebody burglarizing a, you know, convenience store or something. 
uh, I think that doesn't serve the interests of public safety and it doesn't serve the interests of justice. And so it's kind of, you know, in our opinion, quite foolish that we haven't reformed our burglary statute and followed um, different jurisdictions. Um, I do think that it will be a seldom. We have, you know, law enforcement and um, the District Attorneys Association that are very, very much um, apprehensive about making any kind of sentencing changes, which, you know, we have to make those arguments very clear that, you know, these stiff penalties, the way that this works, it's not, in fact, deterring crimes. There's really no evidence that it has this great deterrent effect. So I think it's time, you know, certainly to, to reform that and unpack, you know, burglary, look at, you know, scheduling of um, trafficking offenses, drug trafficking offenses, um, and look at the entire sentencing structure. And that's a conversation that we've had in the state for a really long time. And I think with crime and justice coming in and showing all of this data, we'll finally be able to get somewhere. Was there anything out of their work and out of those recommendations that surprised you or that you're particularly maybe excited about? Yeah, so bur- burglary is, is huge. Um, I think that taking a look at the conversations that they had um, for possession crimes, I thought it was a very inspiring conversation um, that the advisory commission had when they were considering you know, the punitive nature of incarcerating somebody for what really is an addiction. You know, Criminalizing addiction is not the right approach. So I think it was... Um, great that they began that conversation, but then the recommendation sort of still ended where they are criminalizing the offense instead of perhaps maybe um, you know, issuing a, a citation and getting the person treatment or something like that. So I hope that throughout the session we can continue to have those conversations to move it more toward a treatment option when people um, have possession offenses. But um, I thought those conversations were really great. I am very excited about you know, looking at theft crimes and reclassifying those, really taking some steps for actual sentencing reform. You know, we've talked about it. You know, ACAJ in the last interim, there were about 13 offenses that myself and the District Attorneys Association agreed should probably be reclassified. But then once it gets to the session, there's you know the complete breakdown because people are so apprehensive to just try it. You know, other other jurisdictions have made changes and they've had success and they've the prison rate has dropped without impacting public safety. So um, I think it's time that we finally have the data to work with to move that through. One thing I've always been curious about, and this came up quite a bit in 2017, where I remember you would come to the Judiciary Committee and you would testify, and then people like. Senator Michael Roberson would be like, that's pro-felon, this is the session of the felon, and um, paint with that broad brush. Obviously, he's not here after losing in 2018, um, but I'm sure those concerns are going to come again, whether it's from law enforcement or whether it's from uh, people who are opposed to this point of view on, on criminal justice. So in terms of dealing with that argument, what is your response and what do you find the best way to, to counter that and what will you be planning to do to counter that during the session? Well, first I'll say that that rhetoric didn't work. Right, so we had very, um, I think we saw that in the election. Um, I think people, the general public, they're starting to see, I mean, and it's not partisan also, it's very, um, you know, we've got um, Americans for Prosperity, we've got um, Nevada Policy Research Institute, us, a variety of different voices that are saying criminal justice reform is the way to go. Um, I think the way to counter that is it's, it's, it is public safety. 
this is it. It is criminal justice reform is about protecting the public because we are not serving the interests of public safety by incarcerating people and not providing them the intervention and the services that they need to be successful outside of prison. The majority of the prison population will return to the streets, and recidivism is what we need to focus on. So, by providing that programming, by making sure sentences are proportionate and a person isn't spending more time incarcerated than necessary, those are the things that are going to change our community and impact safety as a whole. One of the interesting things that came out of that for me was hearing that, uh, you know, Nevada over the past 10 years or so has really, sentences have gotten longer by, by like three years on average. I mean, it was a really high amount. Um, and yet they're finding that that's not necessarily improving recidivism rate and people that are spending longer in prison on it uh, aren't necessarily having better outcomes because they spent more time in, inside the walls of the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found that to be a pretty interesting trend that came out of the, the data analysis that the Crime and Justice Institute did. Another topic that you guys have been really involved with has been Marcy's Law, and I think you guys were one yeah. of the few voices mm-hmm. that um, kind of spoke out of that, spoke out against Marcy's Law pretty early on, and we had a lot of high-ranking politicians, I mean, Governor Sandoval and Catherine Cortez Masto and, and the Attorney General Adam Laxalt came out in favor of Marcy's Law, and it kind of sailed through, um, but you guys were, were sounding the alarm about uh, what that law could potentially mean for Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's been implemented for a month or two now, um, I believe, and was it November 17th, something like that. Have you guys seen any adverse consequences from that at this point? I have heard from every law enforcement agency about the consequences of Marcy's Law, inquiring, you know, when we're going to file a lawsuit. Um, you know, we, we knew that would happen. We, we, people understood the consequences, but I think that there was, um, that there was political consequences for not supporting the, quote, Victims' Bill of Rights. One of the major things that we're seeing right now, drug courts, with the restitution requirement that you have to pay restitution before any other court fees, that is affecting everyone, So, and particularly drug courts. So we just had a conversation about the importance of alternative forms, you know, alternatives to incarceration. Drug courts are a huge component of that. Their funding is going to suffer. Now, we are not in favor of people having to pay fees to participate in a court program, but that is the way that they're funded and maintained. They're not going to a participate in that program. It's not going to be able to pay those fees because they have to pay restitution first. So if you have somebody that has 100 grand in restitution, I think we're going to need some kind of court opinion or something to tell us what that means and how that's affected. And we're not going to be able to do anything budgetarily because we can't make any changes to to Marcy's Law for three years. So that's um, a huge consequence. We're also seeing um, notification requirements. So I've heard from some juvenile court um, administrators that if a child, you know, there's there's requirements in the law that if there's suspicion that a child has been sex trafficked, they have to investigate that. So they're very concerned that with the notification requirement that if they're not able to find that person, that they can't proceed with that hearing, right? That would be a stage in the, the criminal justice process. They won't be able to proceed with the hearing and the investigation to see if that child who, who committed a crime is a victim of sex trafficking or in some other type of abuse. 
So is that going to delay their care? Is that is that kid going to just be swept up into the criminal justice system when they don't need to be because of a notification requirement? Um, that's terrifying. It's terrifying and it's incredibly sad. And um, I don't think people, I think people re reflected on it, but it's constitutional. We've, it's in the Constitution, particularly the restitution aspect. I mean, I think there's, you know, different legal theory that you can go after, but I think the, the fight against it is going to be very piecemeal, you know. So um, I think, you know, there will be a, a 48-hour and 72-hour hold violation because of the notification requirement at some point, and that's something that can certainly, you know, we can try to fight for court opinions on that um, to interpret what this very vague, broad, um, law means, but it, it's going to be a long fight to um, overcome the consequences of Marcy's law. Yeah, and I guess we should probably back up and explain yes. what Marcy's law is. Yes. So, you know, it's a, it's a constitutional victim's bill of rights, and it lays out, you know, a dozen or more rights that victims have, and among them is that they get paid their restitution before anyone else in the pecking order gets paid. And, and a lot of times, you know, you have a $120 court fee here and a $120 court fee there. Uh, so instead of, you know, the Clark County District Court getting paid that, the victim that was owed perhaps, you know, a $1,000 restitution, that has to go first. And potentially the the defendant uh, is unable to pay some of that other, uh, some of those other fees. There's also requirements that the victims are notified anytime the defendant uh, has a court proceeding, mm -hmm. uh, which is a ramping up of what our current uh, law requires. Um, other factors that you want to mention? There's like system. privacy factors yeah. I think that haven't been like fully fleshed out. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I'm curious, I think Governor Sisolak put some money um, to deal with Marcy's Law implementation eventually in his budget. I think it was under a million dollars though. Do you think that's anywhere, anywhere near sufficient to deal with the amount of upgrades, whether it's notification systems for uh, victims or people involved in these cases or whatever else we need to do to fully uh, comply with the parts of this law. Is that enough or what what are the next steps for the legislature? Per, perhaps for like a statewide victim notification system, if they're going to be mimicking what they already have in Clark County, perhaps it'd be enough for that. But the the financial consequences are it's going to be enormous. I mean, the parole and probation, they're probably going to have to keep people um, under supervision longer than they want to because they have these restitution requirements and now the interpretation is you have to pay the restitution before you can um, you know, graduate from parole or probation, um, before you're discharged from parole or probation. That's going to be an enormous cost. We're looking at new incarceration rates by the notification requirements. I don't think that uh, we're going to know exactly what that looks like um, for a while you know, with implementation, but a drop in the bucket compared to the financial cost of the state will soon. Does it surprise you at all that like all of these law enforcement people, whether it's the former AG Adam Laxalt, and the former AG Catherine Cortez Master, the district attorney Steve Wolfson, like all these people endorsed it, knowing full well they're gonna have to deal with all these consequences down the line. I guess not for Laxalt because he's not in office anymore and Cortez Master's in the Senate, but like for Wolfson, I, I've spoken with him and he's like, yeah, we're gonna need a lot more money to deal with all this victims advocacy stuff. Um, did it surprise you that they just went fully on board and appeared in all these ads and everything else uh, to try and get this law passed in 2018? Well, I guess it didn't surprise me. I mean, I think that, you know, I think now that people are taking a step back and they wish that they maybe wouldn't have pressed so hard because they, um, 
even though they, well, a lot of people were aware of what the consequences would be. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to say that there's not, you know, a lot of, like, there's not sincerity behind Marcy's Law. We do, you know, the state has failed victims in a number of ways. You know, it wasn't until last session that undocumented immigrants could access the, immigrants period, could access the crime victim compensation fund. That wasn't until um, Theresa Benitez Thompson's bill passed last session. I mean, that's, you know, failing that system. But we've seen, you know, all this investment in the technology for notification and, you know, the, the, the fact that they think, you know, victims need notification, victims need, you know, restitution. I mean, that makes sense because we need to make victims whole. Um, but there's services. They need, you know, housing, healthcare, uh, therapeutic services. Why aren't we investing the money in that for victims instead of these sort of, you know, arbitrary notification requirements that are going to, you know, strain the system? And for some context, this is uh, the Marcy's Law in Nevada is part of a national movement to enact this victim bills of victims' bill of rights in a lot of other states, and there's even talk of putting it in the U.S. Constitution. Um, it's headed by uh, Henry Nicholas, who is a billionaire who made his fortune in Broadcom, and his sister was killed in 1983, um, and so he became, you know, an advocate for this. Uh, approach to helping victims uh, and has been bankrolling essentially the entirety of the ballot measure to the tune of something like nine million dollars um, last session or, or last uh, election cycle. And uh, I believe Steve Sislak had to put 15 million dollars in to compensate for some of the implementation costs of Marcy's Law. It's in his budget proposal. Um, so it's quite an expensive uh, implementation process. Another thing I was hoping to chat with you about is the ACLU's effort to address the lack of legal counsel in the rurals, especially uh, the lack of a, a solid public defender system. Uh, so when someone is accused of a crime in a rural county, they're potentially getting subpar services. You guys filed a lawsuit on this uh, probably about a year ago. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this, this situation um, and then we can talk about where where the legal battle is. Yeah, sure. So um, our case is a class action lawsuit, and our, our goal and objective, you know, it's interesting. Nevada at one time had been, you know, a leader in indigent defense services. It was fully funded through the state. They had, you know, high level of um, representation throughout the state, fully funded, you know, via, fully funded in that way, and then suddenly they moved to a process where, Indigent defense and was funded through counties at a rate of, I believe it's 80% county, 20% state. And then now we're looking at a situation where counties are um, fully funding their um, indigent defense services. So, in order to save costs, etc., we're finding in many rural counties, you know, some do have public defenders' offices. But others, they use utilize contract attorneys that come out. Most of them are coming out from the urban areas. They have private practices that are set up, and they take on these you know enormous caseloads. You know, 300 clients just in the rurals. Plus, they have their private caseload. So it affects the quality of the representation that rural indigent defendants are receiving. So we're finding that you know attorneys aren't able to show up for hearings. We're finding that. Um, you know, there were different theories of cases that, you know, attorneys should have been looking at. Um, 
that they weren't because you know they're they're overworked and not paid very well. Now there are some counties that do pay the contract um, attorneys quite a bit of money, but it's caused indigent defendants to not get that high level of representation that they are entitled to constitutionally. So um, the Sixth Amendment Center they issued a report a few years ago about um, rural indigent defense in Nevada, and you know we decided we tried to push something through legislatively to get the state to fully fund indigent defense. But unfortunately, those bills failed. They failed because it is a very high fiscal cost to fund that. So that is why we decided to initiate a lawsuit so that way um, people are getting the, the representation that they are constitutionally entitled to. And in real terms, I mean, this could mean maybe you get jailed in Esmeralda County or something, and you're going to get a, potentially a... a a different type of trial there than you might if you had been accused of the same crime maybe in Clark County. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a, um, one of the huge problems that, that was discovered when the Right to Counsel Commission was looking at indigent defense again. So the Sixth Amendment Center came out again um, during this last interim. We did pass, the legislature did pass a bill creating the Right to Counsel Commission for the purpose of looking at indigent defense. Um, Sixth Amendment Center came out, they traveled to every county, studied what their systems were, and made you know, recommendations based on that, but um, that's exactly what was happening. A very different result in one county versus another county, um, because there's not standards in place. You know, there's no, there aren't caseload standards in place, there aren't, you know, um, there isn't the ability for an attorney in a lot of uh, counties to have, um, to be reimbursed for any costs that are associated. So that drives down the level of you know, quality of the representation that um, a client is getting. So um, we're hoping you know, there is a bill draft this legislative session that will create an office of indigent defense in the executive branch. Now, we don't think it goes far enough, and there has to be a very, very big appropriation um, in order for it to meet the demands of our lawsuit, but we do see it as, you know, if we can amend it a little bit and, and finesse it a little bit, we do see it as a step in the right direction and plan to work with the legislature um, and do some oversight once that's implemented. So I think the current level of funding proposed for that office and the governor's budget is $1.6 million over the two-year budget. And if I'm wrong and you're listening to this, please email Joey because uh, he wants to know about it. Um, but where would you like to see funding for that place? I think that's just enough probably for staffing. But what would be an appropriate level to, to fulfill that service if it's the state doing back to 20-80% with counties for rural indigent defense, or taking over the entirety of uh, those services? Um, we have to do the county-by-county county financial assessment. And I think, you know, that's where we um, agree with the Sixth Amendment Center. It's a little bit different than other states, that the counties do know what it would cost to cover, you know, their caseloads. Um, so what the bill would do is provide an opportunity for a county to request revenue to cover those costs. So the first step has to be, you know, the analysis of, okay, what will it actually cost to cover indigent defense services in this county? And then they can put in a, a proposal for revenue to make up that revenue. Um, but the kicker is that the, there's, the legislature will not be forced to fund it. You know, and that's what we see problematic with you know, moving into this new bill draft. But um, I think that's how we'll know exactly you know, what budget appropriation is necessary by making sure that we're working with counties to get them the amount of money that they need. Yeah, reading through your lawsuit was pretty eye-opening. There were some examples there where people um, 
you know, the lawyer shows up and, and is unfamiliar with the case or spends just a few minutes reviewing uh, a case where someone's life is on the line. Um, and, uh, and they're just overworked and, and overstressed and they have too many cases on their docket. So something like an office for indigent defense might uh, help address that problem. Yeah. yeah, it would create, you know, standards. I mean, we would like to see those standards statutory, right? But it, you know, creating standards, making sure that you know they're reporting on not only their contract caseload, so we know how many people they're actually representing, but their private caseload. You know, because that's the difference between 300 and 600 people. Um, if that's the case, then that's probably not the appropriate attorney to have working on that. Um, they need to work with somebody. You know, there's also been discussion about providing incentives to get people to actually move out to rural counties. Um, I think those are interesting conversations that um, uh, Justice Cherry has talked about for a long time, maybe some partnership with a law school or something like that, but the Office of Indigent Defense could explore those types of um, alternatives and proposals. And the ACLU is still pursuing the lawsuit in spite of the effort to potentially make some changes. Yes, you know, we're still we're still moving forward because you know there are major deficiencies and we need to make sure that we're holding the state accountable. In terms of uh, public records, the ACLU had a bill last session, uh, the Silver State Transparency Act, if my memory serves correctly. Um, it wasn't passed, but uh, there's going to be another push for public records. We've gotten emails from the Nevada Press Association um, asking for examples of bad relationships with uh, accessing public records. Does the ACLU plan to push for any bill to expand uh, transparent government, open government, and what form will that take? We are part of that coalition. We are part of the coalition. Um, Right to Know Nevada, it's us, um, several different organizations, journalists, it's um, a really great coalition of people that are, are um, um, lo looking at you know, overhauling the public records law in, in a similar way to what was proposed last legislative session. But you know, I think the most important part is you know, providing um, an avenue for the public to refine a request. You know, so, Sure, you could put in a request for the entire criminal justice database, and that does put a lot of work and effort um, on the state. But you know, providing an opportunity for the state to work with you know the requester to refine that and find out exactly what they're looking for. We'd love to see the default be electronic documents, um, any kind of drivers that can um, anything that can drive down the cost of the actual request, because a lot of people you know put in a public records request and. You get a bill for five thousand dollars, you know, instead of like communicating with the requester to save some money on those requests. It really is kind of um, against the spirit and intent of the public records law to charge somebody that because no one will be able to pay that fee to access it. So we're excited about the bill. I'm excited to look at the language and work with you know the coalition on that. Um, it's, it's a bipartisan effort. Senator Parks is sponsoring the bill, and um, he's the chair of the Senate and Government Affairs Committee. So we think it'll it'll get some more traction this this legislative session, and um, it's something that the, the governmental entities and you know the transparency advocates can work on together. Would you want to open up like the state legislature to public records locks? I know that was a big concern a couple of years ago, and still is that we can't access their emails or calendars or anything like. Yeah, we, we, we consistently advocate for that. And the legislature certainly has the power and authority to issue a rule that makes, you know, that provides access to that. But we have not been successful in pushing them to do that. That's not in the bill draft. It's not something that we're pushing forward in this legislative session. But 
I think it's an important conversation to keep engaging in that really it's the only governmental entity that we don't get to know, you know, what's happening you know, behind closed doors. And we want to, you know, encourage lawmakers and let them know that, you know, that's part of democracy to allow people to see what's happening. Certainly private strategy, political strategy, sure. But I think there's ways to involve the public in, in more of what's going on in their day-to-day activities. Holly, uh, there's been a big push for school safety in Nevada. So we've seen a lot going on at the local level with Clark County School District, and we've seen uh, big proposals statewide. Steve Sislek has put tens of millions of dollars towards more police officers and more social workers and, and hardening the campuses themselves. Um, one thing you guys had been vocal on was Superintendent Jesus Jara's uh, proposal to do some more searches on students. Uh, tell me a bit about what your concern is with the specific policies he's proposing. Um, is this lack or the, the superintendent of okay. the so The issue there, it's very, very intrusive. So, you know, what the case law says, you know, um, is if you have a search in a school that's generally applicable to everyone, the less less you know, suspect it is, so the, the less likely there is to be you know, a Fourth Amendment violation because everybody is applicable to everyone. Now, we don't like the concept of having metal detectors. We don't like children should be going, shouldn't feel that they're in prison when they go to school every day. And we are hardening schools, and that seems to be the gut reaction to um, tragedies that happen in our communities. Now, that proposal it's a wanding, so they do, they're, they're um, utilizing a metal detector wand, and uh, they're supposed to have some kind of system in place that makes it random, so it's, you know, a random sampling of kids, they get searched, and then the next time it's another random sampling of kids, somehow they're going to avoid duplicating, you know, um, searches on particular students, which I'm not sure how that serves the deterrent effect because if a kid gets searched one day, the next day they could, you know, bring a weapon. I just don't see that that's, you know, actually serving the interest of what they're trying to do. It's incredibly intrusive. And, and then they're also saying that, you know, they're only searching for metal, but they're like, you know, what if it goes off, you know, and a kid's backpack is searched and maybe they have marijuana on them or something else. We're looking at, you know, just putting that child into the school prison pipeline, um, you know, they're saying that they're going to, the Clark County specifically, they're saying it's an administrative uh, penalty if they, if they would handle, you know, whatever um, fruits of the search are discovered when, um, you know, they search a child's belonging. But that's hugely problematic. We think, you know, the right solutions, some of the solutions that are coming out of the school safety task force, like more social workers, will be incredibly valuable. And that's what you know, we've been advocating for for a long time. The National Juvenile Justice Network has advocated for for a long time because it resolves a whole host of issues. We can identify what problems children might be experiencing, what their home lives are like, providing different um, you know, tools and strategies to cope with you know behavioral issues rather than just spending you know, a punitive measure that could affect the child for the rest of their life. So you know, we, we have see a lot of issues with that and a lot of issues with, you know, more law enforcement officers on campuses. It's not, um, you know, we want children to be safe. We want children to feel safe. Um, but those types of measures are not the answer because it will cause so many more problems for those kids. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to what uh, Governor Sisolak said at our 
Indie Talks event uh, a couple days back. I was there. It was wonderful. Great. <laughs> uh, was there anything that you were uh, you were happy that he, he put you know on the record or any things that uh, give you concern about what he said or what he didn't say? Uh, I stood up and clapped multiple times. I, uh, I thought I had a you know very clear and unequivocal position on the death penalty, on cash bail reform. Um, I wish that we could kind of dive into, okay, what does that look like to you? But it seems very promising what he was um, discussing criminal justice reform wise. I did have, you know, I'm interested in some concern about, you know, the payday lending conversation that they were having that, you know, that might not be the solution for help helping, you know, disadvantaged and impoverished communities with banking. I, I don't know that payday lending is a solution to that, so I wasn't really happy to hear that. But um, overall, I mean, I thought it was a good and open conversation. I think we'll make a lot of strides in criminal justice reform through the new administration, and um, we're looking forward to working with his office. Can you talk at all about maybe differences in approaches you've seen just off the get-go in his administration versus the last eight years under Governor Sample? We, you know, we haven't had the opportunity. We're we're in the process of, you know, sitting down with, um, trying to schedule time to sit down with um, general counsel and with the policy folks that, that have been appointed to those positions. And um, so we are really looking forward to that conversation. But we do think that with um, Attorney General Ford, that there are a lot of opportunities there. When we do file a suit or something like that, we, we um, if we do name the governor or something, we are always working with the AG as the, the, governor's, um, the attorney for the governor's office. So um, I think we're looking at a, a different kind of already um, because we do have a good relationship with um, Attorney General Ford. Uh, it's a difference between taking something to court and solving issues at the negotiation table. I do think that um, you know we're feeling good about that, and we're looking forward to having that you know open discussion. So there is a very clear difference there. The nature the nature of the relationship will always be adversarial. That is what we do. We are a government watchdog organization. Um, we are going to constantly you know file lawsuits and, and advocate for for prisoners, etc., whose rights are violated on a regular basis, no matter who is in power. Um, that's just the way that it is, but um, we're looking forward to you know, that open and transparent relationship to really solve these issues. You guys are always at the table <laughs> in the session. You, you're involved in so many of these different issues. Um, aside from the ones we just talked about, are there any other uh, key issues you think the ACLU will be active on this coming session? Yeah, so uh, we are working on a cash bail reform. So uh, Assemblyman Sumo, he has a bill, a cash bail reform bill. We were encouraged that Governor Black was discussing that. Now, um, cash bail has been really interesting in different states. It has to be done right. We want to make sure that we're basing it on um, really focused on, you know, bodies out, bodies out of jail. You know, any kind of low-level misdemeanor offense, there's absolutely no reason for that person to go to jail in the first place. Um, we want to stay away from racist risk assessment tools that are based on, you know, convictions, and um, they're also, um, they have, like, cell phone requirements, and, you know, they have to have a physical address that's going to affect, you know, poor individuals, um, you know, things like that. We want to make sure that, you know, any kind of cash bail reform doesn't have those types of systems associated with it, but we think that we'll pass a good bill this legislative session. 
And um, we're also really focused on voting rights. We see a lot of opportunity with voting rights. We would love to see same-day voter registration pass in the state. So we're uh, working with our national organization to get a lot of focus and emphasis on that and working with um, the Speaker's office and different legislators on their bills. So we'll be deeply involved in that too. For those who don't know you and your background, um, wondering if you can kind of give us the story of how you became the uh, ACLU lobbyist here today. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's funny. I, my sort of political path, you know, I did work in, in electoral politics for a while. I, my first, I didn't know how to get involved. I didn't feel like I had a voice. And, um, you know, I got involved with um, the No. 2 campaign and Lori Littman Brown, she's a former state senator. She was my theater teacher at the time. She's like, you know, you can, you can get involved, you can do all this stuff. And she actually introduced me to um, Alan Lichtenstein and Gary Peck at that time. That I, I remember saying out loud, I'm like, I want to be a, a human rights lawyer for the ACLU. And then, boom, I somehow did that. But, um, you know, it started with that LGBTQ advocacy and then um, sort of blossomed into other advocacy. And, you know, I worked on a few political campaigns and eventually decided that I wanted to go to law school. And when I was done with law school, this opportunity was there, and I said, absolutely, let's do it. So um, I can't imagine working anywhere else. I'm incredibly passionate about it, working um, to advance civil rights and civil liberties, especially, I'm especially passionate about youth justice and um, solving issues for incarcerated youth, so I can't imagine being anywhere else. And you're a Reno native, is that right? No, I'm actually from Las Vegas. Oh, I was born and raised in Las Vegas. I graduated from El Dorado High School, where I lived in Reno for 11 years. I guess, yeah, just wrapping up, Holly, um, you know, when it's June 6th and we haven't slept for two weeks, we're finally <laughs> at Sine Die, um, what will you be looking at when you measure how successful the ACLU and you were um, this session? Are, are there particular priorities you want to put out, or what are your overall goals? That... Um, I think if we, you know, we have our agenda, if we pass a voting rights bill, that would be hugely successful. If we make a lot of progress on, um, you know, the JRI criminal justice reform agenda and cash bail, I will feel very successful. And, excuse me, um, if we're holding, you know, lawmakers accountable, we do a scorecard and we do a legislative report. So, I mean, I think as long as we're you know, being vocal and we're, we're encouraging lawmakers to do the right thing, we'll feel that we had a good, successful legislative session. And if lawmakers don't, we'll, you know, if they make a poor decision and have a bad vote on something that we're pushing, we're going to let the public know. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and, and chat about this upcoming session. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more as uh, all these subject matters unfold over the next 120 plus days. So uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, but probably not after this episode, email us at ideas at the Please check out the site if you haven't already, the nevadaindependent.com. Search for us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast listening platform is. And remember to rate and subscribe us as well. I want to thank Michelle and Holly for being here tonight, and a special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato. I'm Riley Snyder. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.